This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Well, we find ourselves gathering here on the last day of calendar year 2023. And for some, as was noted, uh, this was a year full of success and growth. And for others, a year of struggle, perhaps heartbreak. For a lot of us, it's probably a mixed bag. Um, The end of a year is always a good time to look backward and then look forward. Uh, As we consider the year ahead of us, you may be feeling excited or eager, or you may be feeling a bit apprehensive. Uh, A recent CBS poll found that more than 40% of Americans were fully hopeful for the year ahead, while the other 60% were kind of split between uh, fearful and then a mix of both. It's funny that that poll actually skewed the the optimism, as you would expect, skewed way young. So the younger you are, the more optimistic you felt, but as you are, were a little bit older, you were feeling a little more anxious, uh, which isn't surprising. I mean, the longer you live in this world, the more you come to expect that you never know when your plans are going to get overturned by life. You, you can get a late night phone call or an unexpected diagnosis that could throw you for a tailspin. So as such, sometimes when we look to the future, we are maybe a little nervous about what's to come. Yet, as we sit here in this house, we do so as a people who are joined by a singular hope in a God who rescues and redeems sinners. Those of us who have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus and have put our whole trust in him and in his sacrifice for our sins are now standing secure in the knowledge that the life we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. We have a sure inheritance, confirmed by the indwelling Holy Spirit as a deposit for our glorious future. And as Christ Jesus was resurrected in the flesh, never to die again, so we will one day be resurrected with him in glorified bodies for all time. So if all of this is true, what really do we have to be worried about? Nevertheless, we do worry. We grow fretful. And so we need reminders from the scriptures that we have hope. And not only hope for the life to come, but hope for this life as well. So this morning, we will examine one such passage where the people of God are reminded of the hope they have, not in their own great deeds or successes or skills, but in the faithful character of a loving God. As we consider the year ahead of us as individuals, as households, and as a church family, my prayer is that we do so with hope believing that God has good plans for us and that he will bring us good and himself glory through us in the days to come. So here's kind of the overarching idea we're considering this morning. The grace of God that we have received through Jesus Christ gives us hope and enables us to build, work, and grow as God's people. By God's grace, may you look forward into the new year with joy and confidence because of who God is and how he faithfully loves and cares for us. Now, before we begin, we should first ask, what is the background of this text, Psalm 127? Where does it fit into the big story of the Bible? Now, Psalm 127 is one of the psalms or songs of ascent. These are the songs that the Israelites would recite or sing as they traveled up to Jerusalem for the three main religious festivals, the Passover, the the Feast of Weeks, or what we would think of as Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. All three feasts, we should note, were instituted while they were wanderers looking forward to being established by Yahweh in the promised land. These psalms were sung as travelers literally ascended 
the terrain up to the city of God to celebrate his faithfulness throughout their generations. Well, who wrote this psalm? There's a little bit of debate, or has been over time, because the wording of the introduction, uh, the tag there, we see in our, um, in our English translations, you may see it says, a song of ascents of Solomon. Now, there are some uh, who say that the Hebrew there should be translated as being a psalm for Solomon, so perhaps written by David, while others say that it is a psalm of or by Solomon. Now, given the thematic connections this psalm has to both Solomon's life and to his writings in Ecclesiastes, I would agree with folks like Calvin and others who say that this is one of several psalms written by King Solomon. That would mean that the psalm comes out of a time of national peace and great economic prosperity in the life of Israel, the pinnacle of their outward success during the reigns of the Old Testament kings. So that's the context. Let's get into the substance. Now, if you're taking notes, our outline will be made up of three key ideas uh, or statements reflecting verse 1, verse 2, and then verses 3 through 5. So let's get started with verse 1, and here's the first point. Because we believe God is sovereign, we build in faith. Because we believe God is sovereign, we build in faith. Let's read verse 1 of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We should begin by noticing some important distinctions. First, this verse is not saying that building a house or watching over a city is a vain activity in and of itself. The scriptures are clear that building and caring for our families and our neighbors is a noble and righteous task. And in places like Proverbs and 2 Thessalonians, we are commanded to be diligent in our work and in the stewardship of God's blessings. It is right and good to store up for the future, to prepare for rainy days, to lay an inheritance for our children's children. Further, we should notice that God is not absent from the working of the world. We reject the deistic understanding that God was a watchmaker who set the world in motion and then kept his hands off and let it run for millennia. Quite the opposite. What we see in the testimony of scriptures is that the transcendent, all-powerful, eternal God who created the universe is intimately involved in its function and events. And here in verse 1, we see evidence of this through the use of negative statements. First, Unless the Lord builds builds the house, we build it in vain. We labor in vain. If we seek to build a household, a business, an empire out of your own strength or skill or cunning, without thought to God's commands or authority or providence, our kingdom is constructed on sand. All of history is littered with the bones of human empires that tried to stand without any thought to the God who reigns in the heavens. You may be seeking even now to build your life on your own, to build your educational pedigree, business, marriage, household, even a ministry. But if all your expending of effort is merely your own work and not reliant primarily on the blessing and guidance of the Lord God, you are setting yourself up for ruin. It may not be right away. You may see some success in the short term, but it won't last and it won't produce the right kind of fruit, the right kind of fruit that lasts. We see also, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. We can take every precaution against calamity. We can secure our houses with locks and alarms and tools of defense. 
We can diversify our resources to prepare for financial hardship. We could take out insurance policies. We could have a basement stocked with emergency supplies. But all of our best efforts to protect ourselves cannot stop calamity from coming if the Lord himself does not hold it back. We are not all-knowing. We are not all-powerful. We cannot protect ourselves from everything. We are vulnerable to the storms of life. However, these negative statements hold a positive truth that should fill us with hope. Because if the Lord is building our house, we can build with confidence. If we acknowledge him in all our ways, Proverbs 3, 6 says, then the Lord will make straight our paths. If we honor Christ as Lord, we walk humbly before him, he will lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, even if those paths sometimes take us through the valley of the shadow of death and into the presence of our enemies. And if the Lord is watching over us, once we have worked to provide for our household and take wise precautions, we can rest in the knowledge that the Lord is our shelter and the shade on our right hand. The Lord God is our strong tower that we can run to in times of trouble and find safety. So what does this first verse teach us as believers in Jesus and members of this church body? Well, here's a few points of application for us. First, as we look to the future, we can build with hope. Rather than having a fearful expectation of future disaster because of this foreign country or that coming conflict or who might be elected or not elected in November, we can lean forward into 2024, trusting the Lord as we work heartily in our jobs, as we teach our kids, as we plant gardens, as we start businesses, as we seek to serve and love others. Now, I want to be clear. This isn't some sort of prosperity gospel, word of faith, name it and claim it. Uh, thing. The scriptures do not guarantee that everything your hand touches will be successful. However, when you live in faith that the Lord is watching over your house and he's guiding your steps, you can stop being afraid to move forward. Ask God for wisdom. Seek wise Christian counsel. Count the cost of your decisions. Yes. But then walk in faith, Trusting that both the good and the bad that come to you in 2024 are coming through the hand of a loving Father who will work all things together for your good in Christ Jesus to make you more like him. Secondly, as a church, I think we see that God is building and continues to build up this spiritual house with living stones. Now, we have seen brothers and sisters come and go in recent years for lots of reasons, and whenever our friends and loved ones move on to a different place. We mourn that loss. But at the same time, I hope you are as encouraged as I am about how God is continuing to call people to himself and call people to join this fellowship. The testimonies we've seen in recent months through professions of faith and the testimony of public baptism are evidence that God is continuing to build his church and build this church. This should motivate us all to be all the more eager to share the gospel with those around us. Let us pray and ask God to add to our number daily those who are being saved. Not only that, but as a church body, we should seek to honor the Lord and ask for his help as we physically build toward the future. Now, no, this isn't some sort of building program. I'm not rolling out some sort of giving plan today. You can rest assured. It's okay. But let's be honest. This beautiful house that we get to join in and we get to meet in is in need of repair. We've had it for a while. 
And in the next few years, we as a church body will need to make some decisions about how we steward this property and the resources that God has entrusted to us as a church family. And as we consider those challenges and those opportunities, let us do so in confidence, looking beyond just the immediate needs of today or our current preferences or comforts or desires and looking forward to how we can love and bless and build for the generations of believers at University Park Baptist Church who will come after us. Let's look two or three generations down the road at who will be sitting here in this church body. If the Lord builds this house, then our labors will not be in vain and we can build in hope. Now, before we continue, I want to stop and ask you individually to consider a question. What is your life built on? See, Jesus said in Matthew 7 that the person who hears his word and obeys it is like a man who builds his house on rock so that when the storm of life and the storm of judgment ultimately comes, the house stands firm. But there is another, one who hears Jesus' teaching and does not obey it. That man is like one who builds without a foundation, building on sand, and the storm destroys his house, and terrible is the fall of it. My friend, if you are not building your life on the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you are not his disciple seeking to obey his commands, then the warning of verse 1 is for you. Whatever you build outside of knowing and loving and serving Jesus Christ is a vain work that will profit you nothing. I would charge you before God to consider your ways, to examine yourself. And if you have not turned from your sinful ways to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you should do so this very morning. Those who do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ have no real or lasting hope for the year to come, let alone the eternity that will follow it. And you have no share of these blessings that this passage describes. Consider this carefully, my friend. Turn to Jesus and live. If you have questions about this afterwards, I'll be right here sitting on the front row somewhere and you can come grab me. Now, let's look at verse 2 now. And here's the next key idea I want us to consider. Because we believe that God is generous, we work and rest without fear. Let's look at verse 2, Psalm 127. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, after hearing the vanity of building and watching outside of God's sovereign care, we now see the vanity of working and fretting outside of God's gracious provision. The person described in verse 2 gets up early and works late into the night. Now, note again, this, the issue is not that they work long hours. As we said previously, diligence is praised in the scriptures. The question we must ask this person described in verse 2 is why? Why are you burning the midnight oil? And the answer is found in that word, anxious. Now hold your place in Psalm 127. Flip over to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about the anxious efforts of those who are working for material goods. We see this in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. This is what our Lord says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When we are seeking God's kingdom and righteousness, and we are trusting that God knows what we need, we can approach our daily labor and toil in the right mindset. Rather than getting up early and staying up late because we're frantically trying to store up wealth as a hedge against the unknown, we can work heartily as unto the Lord and then cast all our cares upon him, resting in the knowledge that he cares for us. Consider that last phrase from from Psalm 127, verse 2. He gives to his beloved sleep. Have you thought lately about how sleep is a gift? I see some yawns. That's okay. Have you thought about how sleep is a gift? You know, we fight against sleep as young children. I know my kids do. But eventually we realize sleep is a kindness. It's a gift from God to you. You lay down and you fall asleep. You're defenseless. You're unaware of what's going on around you. You give yourself fully to slumber. Time passes. The world spins. How can we do that? How how can we do that? How can we actually do that? Well, Psalm 4, verse 8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, again, this isn't a promise that nothing bad will ever happen in the night. Rather, it's an act of trust. Remember, if we believe that God is sovereign and we believe that God is true, then we must believe him when he promises to do good to us uh, and to work all things for our good in Romans 8. And therefore, because we believe that God is sovereign, true, faithful, and good, we can go to sleep. And entrust ourselves to his watchful eye. After all, in Psalm 121, God says that he who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So let's think about this. It is vain to wear ourselves out in a fearful, fretful attempt to work as much as we can and earn as much as we can as if we have no provider. Because by doing so, we are giving up the blessing of rest and the peace that comes with that. Think for a moment about the commands of the Old Testament regarding the Sabbath. Now, we don't have time to get into whether the, how the Sabbath commands should or should not be interpreted by those, those of us who live under the new covenant inaugurated in Christ, but I just want you to see the parallel to what we're talking through here. The people of God in the Old Testament lived in an agrarian society, a farming and herding-based society. And they were told specifically not to work one day out of seven. Now, their pagan neighbors worked. 
Their Egyptian taskmasters certainly worked. But God's people were specifically told to forego one day's work each week in favor of rest and worship. Now, what is the promise inherent in that command? That God would supply the needs of seven days and six. We see that in the provision of manna in the wilderness, don't we? That they were not to gather manna on the Sabbath, so they, but they were allowed to gather extra the day before. And there was always extra manna provided the day before. God was faithful to give them what they needed and give them rest. In the same way, God's people are commanded to work hard and then rest in faith, knowing that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. So how do we apply verse 2 to our lives, both as households and as a church body? First, I think it may be time for some of us to step back and examine how and why we are working. Now, if you're not being diligent, if you're not meeting your responsibilities, then the clear command of Scripture is to work as unto the Lord and not to men. And, and, And if you don't work, you shouldn't eat, Paul says. However, I think some of us may do well to consider if The extra hours we're putting in at the office are motivated by fear instead of faith. Look, this may be a season where it's good for you to work a bit extra, to do good for your family, to store some away, pay off debt, serve, and and love the church. By God's grace, I have the opportunity to do that myself. I'm working a little bit extra in the evenings in addition to my normal job, and that's a blessing for for this time. But the bigger question is that we should be Beware foregoing the gift of rest because we may be explicitly or even just implicitly doubting that God will actually provide for us. The bigger problem may be that rather than asking God for what we need, we try to take care of it ourselves so we don't have to bother God with our daily bread. What foolishness is this? Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Perhaps the best thing for us to do is to follow Paul's instruction in Philippians 4, not to be anxious, but rather in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Because what happens then? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Secondly, as we seek to work and rest in light of God's generous provision and care, this will then translate into how we give of our resources to the work of his church. I have to say, I didn't, I didn't think about the fact that we were doing the offertory, offertory prayer today. I didn't see the text that was read. That's God's providence. So that's already in your head. If you've been to one of our members' meetings lately, you know that as a church body, our monthly receipts have been going down. And I totally understand the challenges of the current economic climate, how things, just inflation, how things are kind of tough for all of us right now. And how that affects the way that people give to churches and other ministries. This is not, take a breath, I'm not reaching for your wallet. This is not the hard sell. But just think with me on this. In our 2024 church budget, we as a church have sought to be careful and prayerful and faithful in how we plan to use the resources that God provides through the gifts 
of his people. Because that's where it comes from, right? We are the means that God uses to fund this church. So my encouragement for you and for me is this. As you consider how you work and how you rest, trusting in God's provision, let me challenge you to pray for the finances of this church family. Pray that God will bless financially the households represented here for the very purpose of supporting the work he is calling us to do in this place. Our God is generous and kind, and he is glorified by the generosity of his people. So I would encourage you to ask the Lord for what you need and then use that provision to support the work of this church body in a way that is consistent, proportionate, sacrificial. Not living beyond your means, but seeking to be faithful in how you manage what God entrusts to you and then working with us to be faithful in what God entrusts to us. Okay, take a breath. That's all I got to say on that point. All right. Let's look at the last three verses of Psalm 127. Here's the key point for this final section. Because we believe that God loves life, we welcome and train up children in the truth. Psalm 127, starting in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, before we go any further, I want to speak to some of you who are ready to check out. Specifically, younger singles, older folks without kids, widows, widowers, or those couples who, for whatever reason, have not been able to have children or who perhaps have recently lost children in miscarriage. What I want to say is this. Don't check out yet from this sermon because what I have to say here applies as much to you as it does to any of us in this room. Okay? So bear with me. The scriptures shout the fact that God is a God of life. He gives life. He loves life. And he loves people. And because God loves life and he loves people, that means he loves kids. Jesus himself welcomed the interruption of noisy children into the middle of a busy ministry moment, and he reprimanded the disciples who kept them away from him. Now, let's look at these three verses. Let's observe the truths that are shown there, and then I want to make a few applications to how we live as families and as a church body. First, we see that children are a blessing from the Lord and not a burden. Spurgeon wrote that when a society is rightly ordered, children are regarded not as an encumbrance, but as an inheritance. And they are received not with regret, but as a reward. Unfortunately, we don't live in a society like he describes. Instead, there are news stories about how young people are avoiding having children because of their fears of climate change. And how others are celebrating a life without children as the freedom to do whatever they want. We live in a culture that regards babies as a burden and pregnancy as punishment. The mere product of conception rather than a uniquely created image bearer and human being. That's why we have lived with the national disgrace of abortion for the last 50 years. And why even now, after the overturning of Roe, there is still much to be done for the cause of the unborn because men and women still think it a small thing to murder their unborn babies. This is an outrage. And we should never get used to it. 
Instead, we as the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century should stand shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters throughout church history who have opened their arms to children, especially those who have been rejected by their own families. That's one reason why the church has a particular opportunity to display the gospel when it comes to adoption and foster care, to show love and kindness to unwanted children who are in need of families and who have suffered great hurt. And we do so wisely and carefully, knowing that it's not an easy thing. But that's also why, as believers, I think it is right and good for us, as families, to be, opening, be open to welcoming biological children into our homes. This is sometimes a complicated subject, and I'm not going to try to oversimplify it here. But the scripture before us is clear that biological children are a blessing to be celebrated, and believers should receive them gladly as an inheritance and gift from the Lord, even as they are at the same time a responsibility and duty from the Lord. I read one uh, a commentator, I think it was Matthew Henry, that said something like, if we receive in faith the, mouth, the mouths that God gives us, we also pray in faith for the meat to fill the mouths, right? Like, that's the big question. Like, how can we afford more kids? Well, the Lord gives. The Lord gives you children. The Lord will provide for your children. And this is not to say, hear me, this is not to say that if you do not have children, you are not blessed by God. I know there are many families who have been touched by the loss of a child through things like miscarriage who are, who, or who have struggled with infertility. I would bet if I asked you to raise your hands, don't but if I, asked you, if I asked you to raise your hands, if that's you, I think some of you would be shocked by how many families in this place have walked through that journey. It's, it's so many of us. The Bible's teaching that children are a blessing from the Lord carries with it the implication that it is the Lord who gives the blessing. In his comments on verse 3, John Calvin wrote that the language of reward and heritage implies that children are not earned through our efforts or even our good fortune. Children are given as God sees fit to give them, and like all blessings, the Lord gives these gifts to whom he wills according to his good purposes. So I would encourage you, if you are mourning the lack of a child or the loss of a child, to bring that pain to the Lord who entrusted to his care and to trust his heart and his plan. He is faithful to bind up the brokenhearted, and he can redeem the pain and loss of childlessness. And secondly, we, are, we see children described as arrows in the hands of a warrior, and that he who has a quiver full of them is blessed. Now, I am not going to speak to the quiverful movement that you may have heard of. That's a separate conversation. The way that some people suggest there may be a mandatory minimum number of children you have to have in order not to be sinning. That's, we're not even going to touch that right now. You want to ask about it later? Maybe we can talk about it later. But I don't want that to distract you from what this verse is actually saying. Okay? Here's the point Solomon is making. Recognize first, in light of Scripture, we know this, that children are not naturally arrows. You get that? Children are not naturally arrows. All children born of Adam's line are born as sinners. At best, they are gnarled, bent, crooked sticks at heart. They must be born again, given new hearts, remade into the image of their Savior. 
Part of our job as parents is to sharpen and hone these sticks to be sharp and straight and ready for use, trusting that salvation is of the Lord. Our job with the children in our care is to train them up in the way they should go, trusting that the Lord will bless our faithful efforts as he brings about salvation in their lives. And I will say, this isn't my notes, but I think it's important to say, salvation is of the Lord. That means if you have a child who you have sought to train in faith, who has decided as they've grown up to go a different way, trust them to the Lord as well. That's not, that's not your sin. Each one of us stands before the Lord. Each one of us answers to him. And so we as parents can seek to be faithful and trust that the Lord is honored by our obedience no matter what our grown kids may do. But we pray. Those of us with small kids, we pray and we hope, even as they are a handful, that he will call them to himself. And when by, uh, when by God's grace our children may put their faith in Jesus and begin following him, they start to become arrows prepared for his use. And we can then guide them and shape them until they are ready to be aimed and shot off into the world in the name of Jesus. How blessed then is the father and mother who has trained up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, who then move on and begin faithful families of their own. Such parents, the scripture says, will not be put to shame when they face the criticisms of the world, the sneers and accusations of enemies at the city gates or the public square. Now, as we look to the year, of he- year ahead, how do we apply these verses in our homes and families and in our church family? I have a few, few ideas for us. If you have children... Take a moment right now and thank God for those blessings. No matter what the circumstances are with your children, just thank God for them because they are blessings. Stop and and recognize them for the gifts that they are. Secondly, these verses are a reminder to us, to those of us who have children and are still living in our homes, that we have a time-sensitive mission. It is not just to care for the physical needs of our kids or to make sure that they get into the right university or achieve athletic success or are prepared for a career. Christian parents are called to be Fletchers. Our business is arrow shaping. We should always keep in mind that these young ones among us are ours for a short time before they need to be sent out to accomplish the Lord's calling on their lives. So let us be diligent as we consider how our children are educated and prepared for life. Let us be eager to train up our children in the faith, not entrusting it to the care of others, but to take full ownership of it ourselves, including showing them how to participate in the worship of God. After all, these songs of ascent in the Psalms are sung by both adults and children as they travel to Jerusalem. In like manner, we can teach our children what it is to worship God by bringing them along with us as we read the scriptures, as we pray, as we sing, and as we join the assembly in gathered worship. Number three, as a church body, we can demonstrate in both word and deed that because God loves children, we love children too. And we can do this in very practical ways. I love 
that there's no children's church today so you can hear these babies during the service. Thank you, Lord. And I want to challenge us on this. Let's make parents and children feel welcome in this gathering. Look, babies cry, toddlers whisper, children wiggle. And that's not just mine, though I know you hear them. It's part of their nature. And when we hear those noisy kiddos, it gives us an opportunity to thank God for them. Children are part of the future of UPBC. These fussy, crumb-spilling wonders are one of the ways that the Lord is building his house. So let's welcome them. Let's celebrate when babies are born into this church family. Let's make room for visitors who bring their kids into the service because they don't yet know or trust our nursery staff, and that's okay. Let's encourage parents who are trying their best to make sure their kids aren't too disruptive, and let us not forbid them from joining us in the assembly for such is the kingdom of heaven. I'll be honest, friends. We do okay at this sometimes, but we can do better. We're working on it. I could see you working on it. I praise God for you. I know some folks, this is not like what you're used to. All these babies, all this, this noise and murmuring. Stick with it, man. Stick with it. This is how God is blessing us. By having these babies in this, in this room. By having these kids running up and down these halls. And in Sunday school, and hearing them sing the songs and, and listen to the stories and draw on the pictures and all the stuff, man, this is exciting for us as a church family. Life is here. Praise God. We can also demonstrate that we love children by actively serving them through the ministries of the church. This means volunteering to help in children's church and nursery care and Sunday school. It means stepping up for vacation Bible school and children's choir and other awesome outreaches that are available. And I can't tell you how many times I've been encouraged by seeing people who don't even have kids serving in these ministries. People like Kelly and Mariah who serve in the nursery or Marlon who's been working to kick off after-school outreach programs. Folks with grown kids who are grown and gone, like Miss Donna, who always greets and loves my kids every time she sees them. As a church family, we can demonstrate in practical ways like this that we love children and that the children of this covenant community matter to us. So I'm saying to you, even if you don't have kids, even if you don't think you'll ever have biological kids of your own, You can honor the Lord by loving and serving and praying for our kids. So, in summary, this is my hopeful prayer for myself and for you, brothers and sisters of University Park, that as we approach this new year, we would build with hope, trusting the Lord. We would work and rest with peaceful hearts, believing that God will supply our needs so that we can be a blessing to others. And that we would demonstrate by word and deed that we love children and families because God loves children and families. And that by doing so, we will see new generations of believers join this body. May the Lord bless you and keep you in 2024. And may he make his name great among us 
in this city, in this nation, and to the ends of the earth. Amen. I don't know how to play the guitar, so I don't know what to do right now. How about I pray, and then we'll, then we'll, then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll sing. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these brothers and sisters here. Thank you for uh, those who serve us with music. Thank you for these babies in the room. Uh, may we walk in hope this year, trusting that you are sovereign over all things, and that you go before us to, to bless us in your kindness and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.